We've been looking at uh, faith, and we've spent the better part of five, five weeks now looking at faith. And today we're in 2 Timothy. So these are, 2 Timothy's part of the pastoral epistles. So it's 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. I know in your Bible it goes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But the actual order is 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. Paul will die at the end of this epistle. He will be martyred for the faith. So when we approach 2 Timothy, there's this, uh, this awareness that the apostle Paul knows that the, his cross, if you will, is before him. Uh, Timothy's name means honoring God or honored by God. Either would fit. The date of this writing is somewhere between 64 and 65 A.D., Obviously, it is written from Rome, in which Paul will spend his last days. As such, Timothy and, or Paul is writing to a young Timothy, probably when we say young, mid-30s. And he's coming to a very important part. Usually when you are facing end of life, the issues that are most important to you are front and center. Paul is ultimately concerned that when he passes the baton on to Timothy, that Timothy knows the importance of the gospel and sound doctrine and staying on course. And so when he writes this, he's telling Timothy, you're getting ready to take the baton and I want you to carry it forward because I will be poured out like a drink offering, Paul writes, later in 2 Timothy. So today I want to look at generational faith and the importance of generational faith. And the first thing we want to look at, for those that may be visiting, there's an uh, outline on the back of your bulletin. You can see it here. And I have some fill-in-the-blanks there that you can uh, what I call play along with pastors. So uh, anyway, the first thing, faith can be handed down. Faith can be handed down. And Paul writes here, I am reminded of your sincere faith. I am reminded means that he is bringing, it's actually a compound phrase, it, it, and it means something like this, that I am reminded of something that is fully grasped. So Paul has no, uh, no misunderstanding about Timothy's faith. He says, when I think about you and I think about your faith, I know that that faith is sincere. And this word sincere refers to genuine and without hypocrisy. So Paul says, when I'm, I'm here in my jail cell in Rome and I am writing to you and I realize that maybe look out to the place of execution. And he's telling Timothy, I know that your faith is sincere. It is genuine. It is without hypocrisy. There, there's one thing that the Lord does not like, and that's hypocrisy. That means to say one thing, but do something else. And uh, we think of, I think about the Pharisees and what Jesus said. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, 
that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Uh, Paul is looking at Timothy. He has spent time with Timothy. He knows Timothy. And he said, you know, Timothy, when I look at your life, I see genuine faith. I see a faith that is real. I see a faith that is bent towards doing the will of God. And uh, Timothy didn't get here all alone or by himself. And this word faith is pistis in the Greek, which means uh, something that is based on provable evidence. When we think about, uh, when we think about our faith, it is not based on some wishful thinking. The reality is that Jesus came to this earth. He was born of a woman, born of a virgin. He grew up in every way that we did. He lived a sinless life. Everything that God ever said to do, Jesus did perfectly. And then he took that perfect life and he went to the cross to pay for your sin and mine. And he died physically. He wasn't a ghost figure as Gnosticism would later creep into the church. The Gnostics believed that only uh, that Jesus was only appeared to be human but was not human. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus was real. He died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again and he now reigns at the right hand of the Father. That's the faith. Our faith is not based in something that is abstract or uh, a, a myth. Our faith is based in Jesus Christ. And therefore, our faith is based on fact. And as we live our Christian lives, that faith should be evident. My friend and mentor Newt Larson wrote this in his commentary. He had watched Timothy and worked beside him for years. In Timothy, Paul recognized a genuine faith, one adhering to the teachings of Christ and the apostles, which in turn produced righteous behavior. Note this, proper belief and proper actions are components of sincere faith. So when Paul lived with Timothy, he said, you know what? I have seen your faith. Paul examined Timothy's faith and found it to be genuine. Let me ask us all a question this morning. Is your faith genuine? Is it real? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This is not about church, folks. This is not about being Southern Baptist. This is not about being a Southern Baptist pastor. This is about genuine faith in Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, I know it's genuine. I know it's real. I've seen it. I've seen it in how you react to others. I've seen you in your ministry and your dedication to the ministry. I've seen it. It's genuine. So the question for us today is, is, is our faith genuine? Have we truly been born again? Have we truly been brought in to communion with Christ? Now, Timothy didn't do this on his own, by the way. Uh, he had help. And this is probably one of my favorite parts of this sermon. I want to talk about, for a minute, 
heritage. Now notice Paul writes this, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Dwelt, uh, the Greek word there, in noiko, in noiko. That means to reside or to live. A couple of sermons ago, we talked about that Christ may be at home in our hearts. And we use the living room where you go into your living room, you sit around and you live and, you, and that's where the that's where the family congregates and that we should make Christ at home in our hearts. And uh, <laughs> this first dwelt in his grandmother and in his mother. My upbringing, uh, well, uh, this is my, uh, my grandfather, Frazier. He died when I was five years old, uh, but I still remember him. My, my grandfather, Frazier, came to faith radically. He was delivered from alcoholism. And uh, several years ago, 20, no, not 2006, or thereabouts, I went to a Frazier reunion, and my father... Uh, took me to see the church that my grandfather helped build. Of course, there in West Virginia, it's, it's no longer uh, active, but I could see the church where my grandfather laid bricks. And I think about, you know, in some ways, you know, I remember going to the Big Bear store with my grandfather and uh, there was one of these little scuba divers where you just go, okay, that, and the, he kicks his legs, and he said, do you want that? And I said, yes. So I did. I got it. So I didn't get to know his faith, but I can tell you from what I heard from uh, my cousin Barney that he had a genuine conversion. Of course, my grandfather died of a heart attack, and like I said, I was five years old, five or six at the time, but I, I do remember him. Um, this is my grandmother, Frazier. Or, uh, what we said down south was Mama and Papa. That's how we called them. Uh, my grandmother, Frazier, uh, very devout. And I went off and forgot the Bible that she gave me, and I still have it. Uh, it's on my shelf to my beloved grandson. And when I think about my grandmother, Frazier, I always think about her faith. Now, I was young and thought I was so cool. But it, it, it's kind of ironic that uh, e even though at the time I didn't think that I would ever be saved because, no. But I, I remember about my grandparents, the one I barely knew but then later came to appreciate his faith, and I, I don't know why God took him so early. Uh, I, you know, I don't know, but I do know that when, and actually there's a, uh, where is it at? Uh, Villa Grove. Vill, Villa Grove, there's a, y'all heard this before, right? There's a Frazier over there who was a circuit rider preacher who preached here in Tolono. How in the world 
God would bring another Frazier. Maybe you guys need to get it so we can get out of here. I don't know. Uh, no Frasers in this area at all. No Frasers here except me and the George Frazier, I think. George Frazier was a preacher during the Civil War. Rode around on a horse. So maybe next week I'll ride in here on a horse just for, just for fun. Then I think about uh, my grandmother Porter, or Mama and Papa Porter, John, uh, pictured here. Uh, he was in a, uh, of course, my, my grandfather Porter, um, uh, he only had a third grade education, but was very instrumental in fixing equipment. He knew how to fix equipment. And uh, I remember one time, this was when I was in Bible college, and I, a friend of mine asked me in Merritt Island, so that's like a, from the tip of Florida down to Merritt Island was like an eight-hour drive. He said, he said, Mike, can you come preach for me? And I said, okay. And so I drove down there, and my grandfather and grandmother, Porter, my grandmother Frazier was already deceased by then, uh, came down and see my grandparents in the front row and, and I preached my sermon and we're walking to the car and my mom says to my grandfather, well, daddy, what'd you think? And my grandfather Porter looked at me and he said, you need to yell more. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the outcome of that. Now my grandmother Porter, my grandmother Porter was really vocal about her faith. And, and my grandfather Porter, too, he fell off the church steeple at 70 years old because he was up there working on the church. My grandmother Porter was always talking about Jesus. She called me just, and I did preach her funeral, and I got loud <laughs> during that funeral. My grandmother Porter called me about a month before she died and she said, I'm dying and I don't want you to pray me out of heaven. I said, Mama, I can't do that anyway. I don't have that kind of pull. If I had that kind of pull, we'd be in, we'd be in business. But she passed away and I think about my grandparents. Now, sadly, I can't say that about my mom and dad. To this day, I'm still not sure my mother knows Jesus. My dad said before he died, and I talked with him one-on-one, -on -one, he said, yes, I've trusted in Christ, and I pray that's right. So my grandparents played a bigger role in my life than my own parents. However, I didn't come to realize that until I got saved. And then as I think about back through, I go, why didn't I listen to my grandparents? Lee and Griffin in their commentary write this, the pair had a genuine expectant faith for the Messiah of the Old Testament. When they heard the gospel, they believed upon Jesus Christ 
as the Messiah for whom they had hoped. They passed their faith on to Timothy. Paul was tracing the faith of Timothy back to its roots. Now let me ask you a question, particularly about generational faith. And uh, so part of, part of preaching is arguing. So I'm going to get into an argument with you right now. What happens when parents live the faith, but their kids do not? Or better yet, what happens when the parents don't live the faith and the kids follow suit? Those are two extremes of the equation. Sometimes it could be that the younger generation simply won't listen. My grandmother Frazier said, when she did find out I got saved, she said, I had prayed for you for years. No doubt my grandmother Porter did. But sometimes they will not listen. That's one end of it. And I would encourage you, no matter how long it takes, no matter the obstacles, if you've got an unsaved child or an unsaved grandchild, I, this is what I want you to do today. I want you to pray for them. Continue to pray for them. Do not quit. My grandmother, Fraser told me she prayed for me for years to trust in Christ. And I actually, I beat the odds because by the time you get 18 it's much less likely that you come to saving faith in Christ. I was, okay, don't hold me to this. I was 23 or thereabouts when I came to saving faith in Christ, and that was through an army chaplain. Sometimes, this is where the ouch comes in, sometimes the youth look at the mom and dad or the grandparents and say, they don't even live what they preach. And so they go, you know what? If that's your Jesus, I don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes the parents or grandparents don't make it a priority. Listen, whether you want it to acknowledge it or not, your kids and your grandkids or your nieces and your nephews or your cousins, they're watching us. And how we live may determine whether or not someday they come to saving faith in Christ. Think about your own family members. Think about uh, your life. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes peer pressure comes in. You don't really want to trust in Jesus, do you? No, that's stupid. You don't want that. And sometimes there's pressure. Then there's what I call the culture war. Listen, the culture wants our kids. 
and we have to throw up some roadblocks and we have to start living our faith before that culture so that our kids and grandkids can see, yes, you can live for Christ. And you can stand firm in the faith against the culture. We are in, and Brother Larry said it in his prayer, we are in a day which is disastrous. And the church needs to start living the faith. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. I'm not talking about you need to be 100%. That's not going to happen. Trust me. But they need to see the intent. And Paul tells Timothy, look, this lived in your grandmother, lived in your mother, and somehow the transfer of that information found Timothy, and Timothy trusted in Jesus Christ. And so that is what's called generational faith. And, you know, in my own journey, it, it, it wasn't, you all know this to be true, you have people that have been instrumental in your life, right? All of us have people that's been instrumental in our lives. There's a group that went before us, and now it's our turn. It's our day. We have a choice. We can either live for Jesus or not. And of course, the danger of not living for Jesus, not being sold out to Jesus, is that it may affect generations that come behind us. Audrey and I did a reset when we first got married. We both came from divorced homes. I grew up in not a good situation. So when I got married, I said, you know what? This is it. We're not doing it. I'm not putting my kids through it. We're going to live for Jesus. Probably not all the time. We didn't do it quite right. But I am so grateful that both my daughters are in church serving Christ. And I'm sure there are times they didn't like me. And there, you know, I see these, I've seen these commercials, talk to your kids around the kitchen table. Mine were going, no, dad, not that much. <laughs> yeah. So we did a reset. We just said there is no divorce. And so we stayed together. And I think some of these things, if you put them as non-negotiables up front, even before I was a pastor, church was a priority. Because I don't think God would call somebody who didn't have church as a priority. And there, there were days we were sick and we didn't go. I get that. But So all of these people, grandmothers, grandparents, parents, friends, family, uh, it, it, this should stir us. This should stir us. I said this, that second part was my favorite. Well, this is kind of good too. So, yeah. Notice verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God. Anazoprio. Anazoprio. Fan into flame. Guess what? It's only used here in the New Testament. 
It's a rare phrase. And what it means is it refers to rekindling. Usually when something's only used once, you better pay attention to it. Fan into flame. Uh, yeah, moving a little bit too much there. I would rather be doing this every day, pretty much. I love camping. That's not true. I mean, I love preaching. I love ministry. But I like camping, and that's why I started the Trail Life program and why we have the American Heritage Girls program. And uh, by the way, that's the Milky Way. That's a really nice picture of the Milky Way. I like that. I don't know if it's superimposed. You know there's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way? You get out into a dark sky environment, and you can see it's really beautiful. I, I see that fire there. One thing that I've taught the older boys, Levi knows this, uh, when we start a fire, uh, you have to put wood on it. You start out with a small one, and you have, to, you have to get down, and you have to blow to get that, to keep the fire going. Uh, eventually, the fire will go out if you don't keep it going, if you don't rekindle the fire. One of these pictures, and sometimes it catches me, sometimes it catches me, and there was one down here at the bottom of the picture. It said, lessons we learned from a campfire. I thought that's interesting. It was a Christian guy. Um, I added one of my own, but this, this is what he said. Lessons from a campfire, it provides light. Didn't Jesus say we are the light of the world? So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God. It provides warmth. He talked about the Holy Spirit helping us. Each piece of wood is different. In every campfire I've ever seen, there's not one piece of wood that's exactly the same. Guess what? That's the body of Christ. Each piece is not perfect. Each piece of wood is not perfect. There's flaws in every piece of wood. Here was an interesting one. Depending on if you build a teepee, if you build a, uh, what I call a tarp, uh, each piece leans on the other. Because he's putting this in the realm of ministry now. We're, we're moving into the realm of ministry. Each piece leans on each other. That means that we support each other. And this is the one I added. To rekindle a campfire requires wind. And one thing I teach the boys is you have to get down low and blow so that the flames will catch again and ignite. He says, fan into flame the gift of God. Now, this is not the gift of salvation that was already talked about in the verses before this. Harisma, and that refers to a ministry gift. Literally means that which is given freely and generously. Uh, let me state this uncategorically. I did not call myself to be a preacher. God called me. Somehow in his understanding, for whatever reason, 
God made it abundantly clear that I was to go into ministry. It was unmistakable. He says, Timothy, I want you to fan that gift. I want you to fan that gift. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write this in their commentary. The spiritual grace received for his ministerial office, either at his original ordination or at his consecration to the particular office of overseeing the church at Ephesus, imparting fearlessness, power, love, and a sound mind. Here's the issue. Now, for me, it, to me, it says, Pastor Mike, fan that gift so that you do not lose your passion. And I can tell you, it's 35 years. You can lose your passion. But for you and out there, this is secondary. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Let me encourage you today to recommit whatever, whatever ministry you are doing here in the church, recommit to that ministry. Whether it's cleaning the church, I'm going to tell you, that's probably one of the most important positions in the church. Because if people come in and they visit and they look around and they see a filthy church, guess what? That's not good. If you're a Sunday school teacher, recommit, fan that gift. If you're a deacon, fan that gift. If you work in the sound system, fan that gift. Don't lose your passion for it. Try to be passionate about your ministry. And then he goes on to say, by the way, in which you through the laying on of, your, of our hands. Uh, and of course, he's talking here. I still remember, I still remember uh, the day that I was ordained by the European Southern Baptist Convention. And Danny Merritt preached that ordination for me. And I had pastors from all over Europe come and they laid hands on me. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there was something that happened inside of me. It was like, you all know I'm not charismatic, but there was something like when those pastors laid hands on me, I really understood the severity of that call. I've not always been perfect. You all know that. But I can honestly say I've always been passionate. We all go through valleys, difficulties. But if I wasn't passionate, I still wouldn't be pastoring. Very rarely, if you look at the studies, very rarely does ministers last eight years. 80% of seminary graduates within eight years will no longer be in the ministry. That's fact. 
We can go look that up. And very rarely does a minister make it over 25 years. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that happens. I don't want to speculate. But I often wonder, did they lose their passion? And it's easy, right? We can lose our passion. And we got to be careful and fan that. Fan it into flame. Now, that's our part. Our job is to fan the flame, fan the gift that is within us. Then there's God's part. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He starts with the negative and then goes to the positive. First of all, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Delia. Delia. He didn't give us a spirit of lacking courage or being timid or weak. Let me say this. You are a child of God. Do you know how much power you have available to you? And do you not know that God walks with you through the storms in your life? And do you not know that he will uphold you with his hands in days of difficulties and hardships? Do you not know that Satan cannot beat you? Do you know that no matter what the world throws at you, you are a child of God? You do not need to be afraid. And God, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, look, Timothy, this is the end for me, but I want to remind you that you should not be afraid. Whether we face surgeries or difficulties or hardships or trials, which talked about that a couple of weeks ago in this faith series, that we should not fear. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are victorious. And we do not need to be afraid. And we can walk this Christian life knowing that God goes with us. He says, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, so stop being afraid. One pastor in a sermon said, okay, it's time to man up. Positively, oh, and by, by the way, this is a good verse. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Be bold, be brave. I guess you could be bold, be brave, be beautiful. I don't Just want to remind you that God goes with you through the storms of life. Power, dunamis, that's the ability to perform something. Love, the word here is agape, and it, normally that means self-sacrificing, but guess what this means, a fellowship meal. <laughs> He's telling Timothy, there at Ephesus, I want you to stand firm and I want you to be bold in proclaiming the truth. And this agape is in the fellowship, that's talking about us. And we looked at that two or three sermons ago. This word fellowship means a fellowship meal. 
Self-control. Sophronimos. Sophronimos. It means to have an understanding about practical matters and thus be able to act sensibly. And the self-control means to have sound judgment. Let me just say this. Satan wants you to quit. That's fact. Satan doesn't want this church to succeed. That's a fact. And I know we got a lot of people out today for sickness. But we need to be bold. We don't need to fear. But we need to live for Christ. Philip Towner, in his commentary, writes this. Discouragement and withdrawal from the struggle of ministry marked a failure to rely on the Holy Spirit's enabling power. Absolutely. A fresh look at the resources he brings to the believers is meant to encourage daily dependence on him. So let me summarize this sermon. He starts by talking about a genuine faith, which was first in his grandmother and now in his mother and now is in Timothy. That's generational. From that point, Timothy says, because of that, I want you to stir and fan the flame of the gift that God has given.